As Rob has just said, uh, I'm an economist and uh, I've been asked this afternoon to talk about money. There's an old saw, they say, about economists, that economists know more about money than people who've actually got it. Um, I think in a room like this, in a place like this, we've all got money. In fact, when you think about it, here in Australia, uh, we are wealthy, oftentimes beyond the imaginings uh, of most people on the planet. You might not think that you're particularly wealthy. Think about this for a minute. You know the Baltic Bridge, which is just down here, goes over the river? Those two great towers that go up on each side of the bridge, picture them in your mind. Each of those towers is 90 metres tall, essentially from the plinth at the river level right the way up to the very top. So think about one of those towers and think about putting on the top of the tower a postage stamp, glue side up. So there's the tower, there's the postage stamp, glue side up, no seagulls. If you were to think about that tower and postage stamp as representing all of the world's people and their levels of wealth, starting from the very bottom. So those who are the absolute poorest, rank them down the bottom and we work our way up until we get to the top. If you did that, by the time you got halfway up, which is around about the deck level, about 45 metres up from the river, you would have reached the average wealth, as near as we can estimate it, of all of humanity. Well, average wealth, again, as near as we can estimate it, is about 2,200 US dollars. Just over 2,000 US dollars. That's wealth, not income. Wealth, that is, stored. Now, if you kept going up, up and up, you'd eventually, of course, come to the top of the tower. The average Australian would be ranked within about an inch or two of the top of the tower. The average Australian has wealth just north of 300,000 Australian dollars, about 325,000 Australian dollars. That's the average wealth. Now, if you were fortunate enough, and I expect there might be some in this room, to be in the top 10% of wealthy people in this country, so your wealth, including the value of your house, for example, the equity in your house, is at least three-quarters of a million dollars, say 750000 right, including the equity in your house, then you would be, roughly speaking, in the top 10% of Australians by wealth. If that's you, then you would be represented not by the tower, but by the thickness of the paper on the postage stamp. Now let's say that you are in the top 1% of Australians by wealth. So your household wealth would be something north of 1.25 million, again, including the equity in your house. If that's the case, then you would be in the top 1% of wealth by Australians, by Australian standards. Relative to the rest of the world, think about our Balti Bridge Tower, think about the postage stamp, you would be represented by the thickness of the glue on the postage stamp. By any reckoning, ladies and gentlemen, we are fabulously wealthy. The fact that many people would qualify there and yet still think of themselves possibly as only of average wealth is part of what I have to say today. That's part of the misleading falseness 
wealth. Well, you might have come along here thinking, oh, well, this guy's a Christian, he's going to tell us that being wealthy is bad and we should all be ashamed and we should give our money away and go and work in the third world. Look, if you want to do that, let me not discourage you. Right? <laughs> uh, but you would be specially called to do that. And certainly you wouldn't want to do it if, you, if your heart wasn't in it. Now, wealth in and of itself is not a bad thing. There's no guilt trip. I'm not sending you off on a guilt trip. Even though we are extremely wealthy. After all, it's wealth that will help us to achieve some of the things that God wants to see achieved in this world. It will be wealth that helps relieve poverty and disease and disadvantage. It will be wealth that funds the research that enables us to deal with environmental crises like climate change. It'll be wealth, our capacity, to spend time doing other things than simply feeding ourselves, which will enrich our communities in so many ways. No, no, wealth itself is not a bad thing. The problem arises when wealth becomes a controller of our lives. Wealth is good, but it's not God. Wealth itself is a blessing. The Bible says as much, particularly if you're able to make money. You know, if you can grow wealth, that's a blessing. God is not against wealth, but he certainly is against wealth displacing him. Wealth is good, but it's not God. In fact, the worship of wealth is idolatry. The Bible speaks very clearly about idolatry. In fact, if you know nothing else about the witness of the Bible than the Ten Commandments, then you're going to get a fair dose of anti-idolatry, starting with number one. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Number two. You shall not make for yourself any idol. You shall not bow down and worship it. They're just the first two. God hates idolatry. He hates idolatry essentially for our sake because he knows what happens when we turn to idols, to other gods that are counterfeit, that are not real, that are not him. Well, I've been asked to talk about managing money well or handling money well. I want to start on the opposite side of that. I want to start by talking about handling money poorly. And then I hope we'll see how handling money well contrasts with that. We handle money poorly when we allow money to manage us rather than the other way around. When we allow money to become an idol. Tim Keller, who is the pastor of a very large church in New York City, uh, recently published a book which is well worth reading if you're interested in further thoughts on this topic. It's called Counterfeit Gods. And Tim writes not just about money, but he writes about the other counterfeit gods which plague our lives. So he talks about fame and success. He talks about sex. And obviously he talks about money. And Tim's organising principle in that book is to talk about idolatry, uh, and he immediately points out that when we hear the word idolatry, particularly if we're not used to the biblical imagery and biblical language, 
The picture which often comes to people's minds is, for example, of a bunch of, I guess, you know, primitive tribes people, uh, you know, running around a totem pole, fires, throwing things, sacrificing people, that type of stuff, something out of a Hollywood movie. Now, that's idol worship. Well, it is idol worship. But because that is one version of idol worship, that doesn't mean that we're somehow excused because we're modern, sophisticated, developed Westerners. No, no, Tim says, an idol is any created thing, any created thing that you love, trust and obey. Any created thing that you love, trust and obey. It's fairly easy to see how money qualifies on those grounds. Many of us love money because money gives us significance and self-esteem. One of the things that draws us to people and things is how they make us feel. But we can love money because it gives us significance. It makes me important. In the words of the old musical, Fiddler on the Roof, when you're rich, they think you really know, says Tebia. And they do. If you've got money, people think that you're somebody who is very worthy, intelligent, important, powerful. And if you, as all of us do at some level, need to feel that we're important and that we matter and that we have significance, you'll get that from money. We trust money because it gives us security. Just like the man in the story uh, from Luke that Rob read out a moment ago, there he is storing up his wealth in the barns and then thinking to himself, well, I'm right, it's all fixed. Now I can relax because my retirement is looked after. I don't have to worry anymore. Mm. We're even encouraged to do that by law, to seek our security in money, to trust money, to place our hope for the future in our wealth. Love, trust, obey. It's easy to obey money because it demands that we make certain sacrifices. And those of us who do obey money find ourselves making very great sacrifices indeed to meet the demands of money. We find ourselves sacrificing other good things, time with family, friendships, even our own moral standards, the things we hold dear, our own values. When push comes to shove, many of us would find ourselves sacrificing those dear things for the sake of this idle money. Tim Keller also, I think, makes a very valid point when he says that the image we have of the idol worshipper the primitive tribes person running around, smoke, you know, skulls, all that stuff. And then we see the child sacrifice and we think, yeah, well, I guess that's all part of the deal. Poignantly reminds us that the modern day equivalent of that is the mother or father who continuously sacrifices the children to the job, to the demands of money. Not sacrifice in that bloody sense but sacrifice in a sense which can be almost as devastating. An idol is any created thing that we love, trust and obey. Easy to see how money is something that we love, trust and obey. So what's wrong with this? 
The Bible mightn't like it, but what's wrong with this? Well, there are completely sensible secular reasons why this type of idol worship is going to do you no good. For a start, the significance of esteem that we get from money and wealth is entirely relative. It is not absolute. So we think about the analogy I gave you before. Well, I guess that's right. We are pretty wealthy. But how many times in the day do I think about the people who are the poorest of the poor? And when I look at what I'm earning and I think about my pay rise and I look about where I live, do I say to myself, yeah, well, I mean, it's a bit modest, I suppose, but this is a palace compared to what three quarters of the world might expect. I live like a king. Do I think that? Well, no. Because my natural human desire is to compare myself relatively with those people who are my peers. I work in a particular part of town, I have a particular profession, I live in a particular part of the city, and I compare myself with those people. And when I do that, you see, I feel that I'm actually average at best. You ask most people where they see themselves on the spectrum, how wealthy they are, they will answer that they are only just average or maybe a touch below. Wherever they are, at the bottom or the top, that's what they'll say. Because, you see, their view is blinkered and they think purely and simply of their own comparator set. So what's the problem there? Huh, obvious enough. The significance and esteem that money gives you is about relative differences. I feel significant and full of esteem if I'm wealthier than them, if I've got a bigger house than them and a, and a nicer car and go to Europe twice a year rather than once. But if I continue to shrink the set with which I compare myself, I will revert back to the mean and back to the average. And up in smoke goes the significance and the esteem. Security? Security is easily undermined by the global financial crisis, for example. How many people have learnt to their shock, like the man in the story that Rob quoted before, their retirement income has been halved by the GFC. Like that, gone. And the prospect of having to work another 10 years, or if you're beyond work, the fear struck into the hearts of older Australians now wondering literally how they will fund themselves until they die. Ask any older Australians in that situation, maybe your own parents, and you look at the fear in their eyes. What about the sacrifices? What we learn about the sacrifices, of course, is that they escalate. In order to keep ahead, in order to keep that gap so that you are, in fact, better than the average bear, you have to run faster and faster and faster. Make bigger and bigger and bigger sacrifices. To the point where you ultimately start to realise, it dawns on you, that no amount of additional effort is actually going to keep you ahead. That this is a race you cannot win. It is, as they say, a hedonic treadmill. You don't make any progress at all in terms of your happiness or well-being, no matter how fast you run. That, in turn, sparks an epidemic of what people are calling affluenza. In the midst of all this plenty, we have one of the highest rates of anxiety and depression. Clinical, not imagined stuff, clinical anxiety and depression, sourced ultimately in this enormous tension that grips people as they realise they basically cannot catch up, they cannot keep up with this and make even more sacrifices, it's killing them. 
And yet the other side is, if I give it away, I will lose all my sense of meaning and purpose. Who am I? That's a dreadful, dreadful trap to be in and it makes people literally sick. So what's wrong with treating money as an idol? Even if you don't accept a word the Bible teaches about this, what's wrong is that it doesn't make any sense at all. It will make you sick. It will not deliver what it promises. You see, money is an exceptionally hard and demanding taskmaster. You set it up as an idol at your peril. What does the Bible say about this? A lot. Starting with this. Those who love money never have money enough. How true. So handling money poorly is about letting money manage you. Handling money well is the opposite. Handling money well begins with the notion that you should keep money in its proper place. I've said money's a bad master. doesn't mean it's a good servant. Money is a good servant. It gets out of control when it becomes a master. Money is not God. It is a counterfeit God. It is a demanding, enslaving and unforgiving God. And that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is exactly the opposite. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, says Jesus. You are free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, says Paul in the New Testament. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more, says Jesus to the woman caught in adultery. The God of the Bible is totally different from money or any of the other counterfeit gods. Well, fine. We need to keep money and and make it a servant rather than a master. How can you practically do that? Does the Bible have any teaching to help us with the practical steps of that? And the answer again is yes. There are at least four points, I think, can be drawn from biblical teaching, both Old Testament and New, which relate to this question of how we handle money well. The first is fundamental, to recognise that we are stewards of this money. We don't actually own it. Like the chap in the other story, I was, um, well, again, the story Rob told, You fool, says Jesus, this very night I will take, or your life will be demanded of you, uh, which is another way of saying you thought all this was yours and as easily as this, it'll be gone this very night. How do we know we're stewards? We know we're stewards because one day we'll be asked to give it all up and when we give it up, there's no way it belongs to us anymore. Who then will enjoy your wealth, says the Bible? Well, if we're stewards and not owners, do we suppose that the owner wants us to manage this wealth while it's in our hands purely and simply for our own gratification? No, indeed. The second practical thing we can do is to break the allure of money worship by giving it away. When I was young and my father taught me about responsible use of alcohol, he said, there's no problem with you having a drink, son. But just make sure that whenever you have a drink, you go and get it and it doesn't come and get you. Well, it's exactly the same with money. Nothing wrong with money. Just make sure that you use it and it doesn't use you. How do you manage to control that? Well, as with alcohol, you keep, you keep it under control. I can say no. With money, I can say no. I give it away. Giving away money is an antidote to money worship. The Bible speaks a lot about what's called tithing. 
strictly speaking, 10% of your income, but the New Testament is not strict about that. What matters is that you are able to give it away. If you can give it away, that will help you from becoming a slave to it. Mind the gap. Build into your lives a gap between the way you could live and the way you actually live. doesn't matter how large the gap is, but build one in. And as you get wealthier over time, this is particularly addressed to the younger members of the audience, let that gap expand. So that there's always a gap between how you could live and how you actually do. Break the grip of money. Thirdly, use your wealth and money-making activities to sow spiritual benefits into other people's lives. Elsewhere in the book of Luke in the New Testament, Jesus tells another story where he advises wealthy people to make friends for yourselves in advance of the day when your money is gone. He means in advance of the day when you're gone. Make friends for yourselves. In other words, use the money that you've been given as a steward to build God's kingdom, to sow spiritual benefits into your own life and those of others. That partly involves giving it away. It partly involves respecting others, practising honesty in your business endeavours, running your businesses and your practices in ways which give evidence to the fact that you are not bowing down and worshipping money. You have higher ends in view. And finally, strive for contentment. Try to be content with wherever it is that God has placed you on the wealth distribution. Paul says that godliness with contentment is great gain. In the Old Testament, the writer of the Proverbs pleads with God and says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Because if I'm poor, I'm paraphrasing here, if I'm poor, I may be tempted to steal. And if I'm rich, I might forget you. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Try to be content with wherever it is that God has placed you rather than anxiously seeking to have more than you actually got. So recognise that we're stewards. Mind the gap. Sow spiritual benefits into other people's lives and strive for contentment. The Bible says that you can't serve both God and money. By implication, you can serve God and have money serve you in serving God. One master, one servant. The key to handling money well is to master it before it masters you. Thanks, Rob.